0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello,
1: this is the bit I talk over. This is Alex Wright, and I am doing my first show. This is called Procrastination Station, and it is my attempt to make a show while not getting distracted and not procrastinating. I am now going to wait for the music to get louder. So it all feels really smooth, but I feel like this is already this two is
0: Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio.
1: All right, so this is weird for me because I can hear my own voice back in my headset. Right, so who am I? Right, and what the hell am I doing on the radio? Right, so my name's Alex Wright and I'm a lead practitioner. Um, I've been teaching for about nine years and I am a very disorganized person. I am somebody who thinks really fast and speaks really fast and forgets even basic human things sometimes and I have ended up somehow on Teachers Talk Radio, um, and my show is going to be about um, attempting to produce a radio show about teaching while being distracted by almost literally everything. Now, procrastination is actually not a laughing matter for a lot of people. and the show is called Procrastination Station. Now, procrastination can be a real problem for people. And I've um, looked into um, procrastination quite a lot and why we do it and why I do it and why when I've got something really important to do, I spend my time looking at other things. And there's a few reasons I think we procrastinate, but it seems to be latest research seems to suggest it's really a problem with, um, with emotional regulation. We fear the failure of doing the important things. So we distract ourselves with um, things that seem really, really trivial. It's not a character flaw, but it's one of emotional regulation. Now, for me, I have learned that one of the best things I can do is actually embrace my procrastination. I can embrace embrace my almost infinite capacity to um, be distracted almost happened just then something went past my window anyway right now so I want to um, talk first of all in the show about the things that have been distracting me while um, I've been trying to make the show before actually getting into the point of the show now this um, has been through several iterations in planning as I've been distracted by various things but it all started from an idea that I wanted to try to rehabilitate or at least try to see in a new light some of the things in education that we have become not very fond of to say the least or things that have almost completely fallen out of favor now this escalated and i ended up looking at corporal punishment in schools now before you start wringing your hands and clutching your pearls and doing other metaphorical things with things about your person um, i'm not going to advocate that we should start beating children again not even ironically, but I have ended up going down a rather different path than I thought I would. However, I still might whip out my defense of the terrible um, interactive whiteboard, the smart board at the end if there's time. But what I am gonna do i'm going to start off with um, a section inspired by the inimitable lou harrison on um, twitter Um, a little while ago i was trying desperately clawing around twitter for ideas for this show and i said what should i talk about on my first teach radio broadcast and lou harrison always hilarious said herald the return of funks with a teaching special what color is geography what does a maths department taste of now I don't know if you remember. I mean, if um, if if you're in the chat right now, you might remember thunks. Um, and please do um, pop into the chat and and tell me your favourite thunks that you delivered. But thunks were supposed to be these these big, um, lateral thinking questions, and they were bizarre. They would ask such things as you know, if you were a tree, how many branches would you have? And if the sun was made of yogurt, would it smell nice? you know, and things like that, you know, things that seem almost to be lifted from an episode of The Mighty Boosh. Now, but I am going to start off actually with um, an homage to the thunks of yesteryear, because thunks have fallen far out of favour. And I am going to discuss briefly my answers to um, um, Lou Harrison's two questions. So first of all, what colour is geography? Now, I know what you're thinking, green or brown, because of all the earth, of all the grass, maybe blue because of the rivers. Maybe it's the colour of whatever map they're colouring in that lesson. If Jack Bauer was in charge of the school spare, what would it be like? Um long, presumably it'd be 24 hours, and he'd be running around like an idiot not going to the toilet and frowning a lot. Um I haven't seen 24, but whenever I've seen a trailer for it, he's always frowning, isn't he? That that man is not happy, you know. If you think that we don't have jobs satisfaction, that guy seems fed up with life, doesn't he? It's always a terrorist upsetting him. Anyway, right. What colour is geography? See, I reckon geography is a weird blend of pink and green. Geography teachers always strike me as a little bit zany. They always strike me as, you know what we've just... It's almost like they've gone, do you know what we're going to study? We're going to study the earth. We are going to study the very fabric of the earth between us. We're going to study the natural world. It takes a certain kind of lunatic to get that excited about sand and to use words like tributary in normal conversations. You know, I've never, I've never understood how somebody can wax lyrical about oxbow lakes for so long, but geography teachers can, and they can do it with a sort of a weird glaze-eyed enthusiasm usually reserved only for those on a significant amount of illegal drugs. So geography, the color of geography is pink and green, melded together a little bit like a stick of rock. And that stick of rock is then force fed to children. What does a maths department taste of? Um, regret. I think it's fair to say a maths department tastes of regret. Um, whenever I go into the maths department, I am I am struck by the sense that these people, who, people's primary language isn't language. And what I find is it's almost like having a little bit of conversation with binary code, but binary code that can talk. So a maths department tastes a little bit like what binary code will taste like, which presumably is nothing at all. It tastes like licking a magnolia wall. That's what I think maths department tastes like. Now, this is not to disparage my maths college. Oh, hello, Carolina Farron, Miss, uh, Miss C.D. Farron, um, one of the uh, benevolent badges of the um, fringe edgy anarchy group that is Badger Red. I still don't understand it, um, but I'm Badger Red Jason many times. Just said, hello, hello, nice to see you. Also nice to see um, resident henpecked CPD aficionado, Gareth Dubai, um, pop in, you know, presumably. H- how have you upset your wife now, Gareth? Is she upset about, so what have you done? What have you f- or forgotten to do, more to the point? Toby Payne Cook, the wonderful, um, silken-voiced Toby Payne Cook whose um, voice sounds like a pair of Victorian bed curtains shutting, has just entered as well. It's really nice to see him. And the hilarious and unhinged um, Lou Harrison's was with us as well. And Nathan, of course, whose excellent show, if you haven't checked it out already, please have a look. Listening to this, Alex, is upsetting my wife. Yeah, I know, but that's your thing, isn't it? You can tweet about it later, Gareth, it's fine. All right, I'm giving you material, mate. Okay. So anyway, so the thunks. So and what would and so Jack Bauer had Jack Bauer at um at a school fete, We've had um geography teachers are bizarre sticks. yet Victorian bed curtains. Don't lie. You've got them, Toby. You've absolutely got Victorian bed curtains, presumably made of some sort of like crushed velvet or something. I'm 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 pretty sure that Nick Wood or uh, Tabitha Macintosh would have a lot to say about Victorian bed bed curtains, um, as probably interlaced with mum jokes. Now But then so that's the thunks. So that was so that was me bringing the thunk back. And I think we can all agree, actually, that outside of the classroom, the thunk is tremendous fun because it allows us to talk a hot load of nonsense. Can it be rehabilitated, though, listeners in the classroom? Let me know in the chat. But that was a section known rather humorously as bringing the thunk. Now, I'm going to um, remember my duty to my hosts and I'm going to now play the first advert please listen to it
0: need support with your phonics teaching did you know oxford university press now has three dfe validated programs to help you read write ink phonics floppies phonics and the brand new essential letters and sounds essential letters and sounds will get all your children reading well quickly using phonics books you may already have in your classroom Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit OxfordPrimary.com forward slash phonics.
1: That's phonics. So if you're not sure what phonics are, you're probably not a primary teacher. I, I to this day, um, I, I think it's probably all just made up. I don't really understand it. Please do educate me. Presumably at some point, due to all the lost learning, I'm going to have to start teaching phonics to year 13s. So I should probably get a head start as all the learning gets lost and we all Turn into brain dribble now. So this next section, then, I'm going to try to use an audio effect. Let's have a look. What have we got? This one is called distraction pieces. Things that have distracted me this week. What sound effect should we use? Let's use this one.
2: oh.
1: Oh yeah. Okay, that worked. It was a weird little oh. Okay, we'll do that one again. Actually. Uh oh that's good was not it that's quite right so these are the things that 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 is hideous isn't it i'm really sorry about that carolina but it's my first time so if you could stop criticizing me that'd be great now um goodness me katie from my work is here as well hello katie nice to see please behave yourself in the chat now so things that have distracted me well first of all penis fencing now i know what you're thinking what's penis fencing it's not humans so it's fine all right first of all it is only 11 minutes past eight so it's actually, this is, um, as a result of a tweet that I stumbled across from, well, you see this, if, they, if your wife wasn't upset already, girl, she will be in a minute. Now, um, So this is from Kate K on Twitter. And this was her tweet. And I mean, this would be if I were Toby Payne Cook, and I'm not because I'm not the me, um, I might include this as tweet of the week. And this is this wonderful tweet. And I learned something here. Now, those um, aficionados of my blog, you five people that read my blog, for some reason, um, you know, that I've written recently about um, the snail, and it's um, hermaphroditic mad penis stabbing that it does with its love darts and whatnot. And this leads into it actually. So this is about Persian carpet flatworms. Um and this is the tweet from KK. Just watched Persian carpet flatworms mating and my life has been changed forever. Scared ghost face times a thousand. Now, let me tell you about the, uh, the Persian carpet flatworms, courtesy of, of KK. This, is, this really distracted me, and you must understand, You know, I know I'm supposed to be doing a show about education, but for goodness sake, Persian carpet flatworms. All right? here's what they do, okay? Their sexual behavior is absolutely bizarre. They do penis fencing. So I'm just gonna read you this out actually from a wonderful um, article I read on Earthling Nature. The most interesting thing regarding the Persian carpet flatworm is its sexual behavior. As with most flatworms, they are hermaphrodites best of both worlds, or worst of both worlds. So when two individuals meet and decide to have sex, they have to choose whether they want to play the male or the female role, or indeed both. Unfortunately, most individuals, and snails have got this beef as well, prefer to be males. So these encounters usually end up in a violent fight in which both animals attack the partner with a double penis, a behavior known as penis fencing. I'd want to take a moment to consider how different medieval jousting would have been if we were flatworms and i think we can all agree that alternate history novels need to really get on this yeah and i don't want to take all the credit because a the credit goes to the flatworms for doing the penis fencing and b it goes to kate Cowan twitter um for drawing this to to my attention so i'm not going to act like i um i discovered this now there's more to this actually the penis fencing is but the beginning at the end the winner spurts its sperm onto the partner and leaves now the silence there was just to allow you to 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 um, get that image into your head, uh, but typical. Well, uh, I'm not gonna ask off whom or what, Gaurav, but there we go. Um, the horrible part is yet to come though. The sperm appears to be able to burn like acid through the receiver's skin tissue in order to reach the inner tissues and thus swim towards the eggs. In some extreme cases, the sperm load may be high enough to tear the receiver into pieces. If that's not a good definition of wild sex, I don't know what is. And that was um, from um, the Earthling Nature website. Um, So, and this happens a lot actually with hermaphrodites. There is the conflict um, that happens um, when you are both male and female, both um, parties want to be the male because it's the more aggressive, it involves lots of stabbing. I mean, with snails, please read my blog post, love darts, for goodness sake, they stab each other. Um, And so what we find is that um, if one gets sperm on the other the other one will try to get rid of the sperm and it's just this this fight um thank you thank you toby and this is the thing it is research isn't it it's not just procrastination it is research i am doing a public service because the 15 people currently listening to this show and the millions more throughout history who will listen to the recording back on teacherstalkradio.org will learn about Persian carpet flatworms, And just give them a Google because they look beautiful as well. They look sort of like crisps if crisps were made of human ears. Um, that, that's what they look like. So so, go, so, have a look. Now, this wasn't the start. See, the thing is I got a bit obsessed with animal courtship rituals actually. And I ended up stumbling across what I can only describe as the hippo poop windmill. Now the hippo poop windmill is a, Joseph Wright wants to call in, invite them as a speaker. Goodness me, this is my brother. What is he doing? He's gone now. Right, that's probably just as well. Right, I don't know what he's playing at. Um, He's probably trying to be supportive. Right, now the hippo poop um, windmill. So if you think the flatworms are strange, um, hippos actually um, do what I can only describe as a poop windmill um, when they are trying to seduce um, a mate. And what they do is a hippo can poop incredibly fast and incredibly powerfully and they will absolutely fire it out with the with the um the the speed of a nuclear rocket but what they will do is they can whip their tails round like a catherine wheel and so what they do is all the poop goes flying off in all these directions and this gets them a mate how low has that bar got to be Now, the thing is, is that hippos um, are actually, uh, hippo poop is incredibly useful. And actually, there's links to silicon and and, um, it's actually very useful for Silicon Valley. And there is a link and I forget exactly what it is, but the iPhone you're probably currently using has probably got some sort of um, links to big hippo poop. Um, Hippo poop, the chat up lines of the wild. Well, quite, you know, and I think what we realise is that actions speak louder than words, don't they? Because, you know, and they are glamorous and they are fabulous and they do fire their poop all over the place. And so this is and at this point, I'm still procrastinating. At this point, I've got no show material. All right. At this point, I've gone from right. Kate K's distracted me with distracted me with Persian carpet flatworms. I'm already in there because I'm into snails. Not that. But I'm into snails. I'm I'm interested in snails. I've looked at the hippo poop windmill. I'm intrigued. Start reading about poop then, don't I? And I ended up reading a really interesting article on J- JSTOR daily called "The Early History of Human Excreta. Thank you, Joseph, if I am a good procrastinator, if there is such thing as a good procrastinator and I'm reclaiming procrastination actually, I'm going to reclaim procrastination as a force for creativity, try to stop me now, now I ended up reading about the Romans and actually the Romans had toilets as we know and the Romans are always sold, aren't they? as super clean, super fabulous, super civilized. What the Romans did for us, all viaducts, all aqueducts, all tear ducts, that last one's there. They didn't invent that one. But what the Romans did actually is the Romans um, did have pretty decent uh, toilets for the time, but they didn't have toilet paper. Now, they did have a sponge grow up. You're absolutely right. And never have I more been more disturbed by an emoji. Now, they had something called um, a tersorium, which was a sponge on a stick. Hello, wolf howl. Please don't howl at me. They had a um, a tersorium, which literally meant a wiping thing in Latin, and they had there was this water that would flow through past the past the toilets, and and they would dip this sponge, you know, obviously on the stick, and and they would and they would use it to when they were finished with their business. And you might think, well, that's that's great, good for the Romans, how clean. Yeah, but there was one sponge, guys. There was one sponge. The Romans used to share it, and so you'd be sitting there, you do business, and it's like, right, Marcus, do you need the sponge now? You know, they left that out, a gladiator, didn't they? My name's Maximus Decimus Meridius. Here's my poop sponge. Left that out, but this is what happened. And it's just one of many examples of humanity doing battle and losing, quite frankly, with its own waste. Um and so it was not hygienic. There was a um, there was a poop sponge in um, Roman times called the Tersorium, where your Italian ancestors are rolling in their graves. Yes, I am sure they are. I'm very glad to have been a service yet again. And so, um, yes, a great article about and there's also um, another Jstor article called Toilet Hygiene in the Classical Era. I'm going to have to put some of these links on uh, on Twitter later on when I uh, do the follow up to the show. So. So this is me being uh, being distracted. And I was also distracted by a number of things um, that really aren't related to this. I was distracted by some very weird Victorian Christmas cards. This is uh, courtesy of uh, Melanie Maria on on Twitter. There was my favourite one. There was a mouse riding a lobster. And there was also a very dapper man who was also a turnip. Uh, The Victorians were very, very odd. I really recommend Googling creepy Victorian Christmas cards. That's an afternoon gone. So Joe I start listening we're talking about poo brilliant I like that you've said we Joe rather than than Alex is talking about poo because it makes it makes it seem like a shared sense of responsibility and Toby says I agree that procrastination is the precursor or enabler of creativity if you're a good procrastinator you'll never suffer from boredom you know I must say to you Toby I'm I'm never bored I can say that yes those cards were rather wonderful weren't they Caroline absolutely um, and I also and I realised The point is, is I realized I needed to really get on with the proper show stuff when I ended up reading about a man who was very upset that his mince pies were too small. You might have seen this yesterday. Um, Asda sold him mince pies that purported from their packaging to be much bigger than they were. They were as shallow as a worm's grave. um, And he was very, very upset. And it was at this point when I felt like the muse was telling me that I should move on to my main segment. So the things that distracted me this week are as follows. I was distracted by the mating habits of the Persian carpet flatworms. What a name for an animal. I was distracted by the, um, the mating habits of um, the poop from the hippo, the wonderful hippo. Do have a Google of the hippo, Carefully click on. I was distracted by the Tessurium, the Roman poop sponge. I have to get my mind, almost was literally out of the gutter. And I was distracted by weird Victorian Christmas cards and a sad man in Manchester with tiny mince pies. Now then, we're gonna move on to our next section. Um, I'm going to talk about um, things in education that have died away. And I'm going to now bring in another sound effect. Boo. OK. Now, this took a strange turn, actually, because originally it was going to be really light hearted. It was going to be, you know, all oh, smart boards aren't bad. They're actually a metaphor for modern teaching. And it was going to be things like, oh, we could all wear thinking hats. Wouldn't it be funny? Alex is being really ironic. He's defending things that are rubbish. And then I started reading about corporal punishment. I can send you the DJ air horn if you want. You'll be careful what you wish for, Sir Joe. You've got to be very, very careful. Give me buttons to click. I've been reserved, quite frankly, so far now. So the DJ air horn, I suppose, in its own way, a form of corporal punishment. Now, corporal punishment. I was born in 1987, which makes me both old and young, depending on who you ask. Now corporal punishment in state schools was outlawed in uh, 1986, um, which means that I have no life experience of it whatsoever, so I was born into a world where, at least in state schools, you could not beat children, which feels like progress. It really does feel like progress to me, I feel like we've, we've come a long way from that. Now. While this is not true of private schools, private schools you could beat children, I think it was about 98, 99. Um, It took much, much longer for the private schools to give up. They really, really did want to beat children for a while. Um, No offense to any of my um, private school uh, colleagues. Um, This is all just, this is all made up. Now, but what is not made up actually is the research I did about corporal punishment, and I thought, and, and the more I looked into it, I, I was never considering rehabilitating it, but I just became fascinated by the idea actually that there was corporal punishment, and so I started to do some some real reading about it. Now, the first thing I ended, I was on JSTOR Daily anyway, reading about um, you know the, the Roman poo sponge, and I ended up clicking on an article called "When Teachers Stopped Beating Kids," and it's about um, American corporal punishment. And the first thing I read and I was really surprised by this, is that there's, I think it's 14 states, 14 US states still allow schools to use corporate punishment. 14 out of 50 states still allow um, corporate punishment. In the 70s, it came very, very close to being outlawed, um, but it wasn't um, in, the, um, in the US. And now it is very much to do with a, a state thing. And what we find in the US is that um, it's still possible to, today um, for corporal punishment um, to be used in schools? It's 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 um, rare, but it's. Um but it still happens. Uh, Can you guess which date? You can, I can't remember off the top of my head, but if you guess, I could always confirm later on, but please do guess which dates without being mean to the states. Garab says, just saying, I was slapped by my nursery teacher. I remember it so far, I'd happily throw a poo sponge at her. Just had to type this. See, I'm reading this as you did throw a poo sponge, but you're pulling a Johnson. You know, the poo sponge did happen. It's a little bit like the Christmas party, isn't it, All politics, you know? Um, but yes, she should not have been. Stung. Let's rattle off the southern sex. I knew you were going to go there now. So anyway, I ended up reading a little bit about um, corporal punishment in, in the US. Um, in colonial and post-revolutionary New England, um, hitting kids was the obvious way to keep kids on task. And there was um, in the New England primer in the um, 1700s, um, the letter F. the commonly used um, New England Primer was the idle fool, F for fool, and it goes like this, the idle fool is whipped in school. So when a fool was mentioned, it was a fool in school and he was whipped in school and so school was a place to be whipped. Um, And in fact, in Sunderland, Massachusetts, in 1793, there was a whipping post built into the floor of this school so children could be tied up and flogged. So very very brutal and i'm going to talk later on about the links between corporal punishment and things like ritual humiliation and shaming and and public shaming and that sort of thing and and what it might tell us about our society And this is where nietzsche is going to come in and all sorts of things now i want to talk about this really weird system though called the the um the lancastrian system Now, it was into Lancastrian system sorry is introduced from uh, england to america in the early 19th century and it offered alternative to corporal punishment Um, and the ideal was was that it was to instill in the working class students obedience promptness regularity and temperance That they need to be good industrial workers and i'm going to come back to the idea that actually corporal punishment is often bound up in the idea of civilizing those who are considered more likely uh, in terms of something innate about themselves to misbehave. And so it often falls along class lines, it falls along gender lines, and it falls um, along uh, race lines as well. Um, it's much more acceptable historically to beat certain aspects and parts of society than others. And as uh, this should come as no surprise. Now, the Lancasterian system's a little bit different. It offers the idea that um, students are motivated in in different ways students are motivated by badges and prizes lots and lots of extrinsic rewards externalized rewards um, for students <clears throat> now They didn't beat their children, but they definitely had weird punishments. And this is what I found out about the Lancasterian teachers. For example, they would put a four to six pound log on a student's neck to make it hard for them to turn their head. Sometimes they would tie their legs to shackles to make them walk around the room. And there's my favorite one, which is a little bit, It's a little bit, um, it puts the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. They place the child in a basket suspended from the roof of the school. I just want you to picture this in a classroom, a misbehaving child put in a basket that is then suspended like a weird flesh chandelier above the rest of their peers. I am going to pause at this point, actually. I'm going to look at something Toby said. Toby says, never was beaten, was terrified of it. My first prep school used the K in 1980 to 84. A friend of mine got six of the best most mornings, and that was what it was, wasn't it? Six of the best. Didn't work as a deterrent for him. A little bit like detentions don't really work for many today. And this is one of the things, absolutely, with corporal punishment, and one of the things I want to unpack here is why was it used and why was it so popular? And, And the main argument and the main idea is, it's like prison or whatever it is. It's, you know, Sanctions are supposed to be deterrents. They're supposed to be about stopping bad things before they happen. Now, the problem with that is that, well, therefore you wouldn't need to do it, but of course they do it. So therefore it's not a deterrent if you have to keep doing it. As, as Toby very rightly says, it is absolutely um, very, very grim. And there's an anecdote um, from an article I read from the Guardian later on, which I'll share with you um, about the mass caning of 200 kids um, from a similar period in history. Um, and it is, it seems about fear and control. And, and this is the thing. And so one thing I'm gonna to do today, and this is kind of the tangent I ended up going down with my research that really fascinated me, is I kept saying to myself, you know, why was this something that was such a part of the educational establishment? And you might be thinking, well, it was just the, the um it's just the time, it's just the way that it was. But actually Poland, um, does anyone know when Poland, without Googling it, does anyone know when Poland um outlawed um corporal punishment? Anyone know? I don't need the exact year it wasn't 2004 joseph it was much 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 earlier does anyone know it was in the late 1700s That's 1784 i think it was in the late 1700s poland outlawed corporal punishment so we can't actually hear way we can't actually have the argument that um that you know we were just going along with um, with the time in fact england was one of the last places to outlaw corporal punishment in europe And actually, the French used to um, refer to um, caning as, I think it was like the English disease or the English punishment or something like that. The English rod. I forget what the actual term was. But the French actually thought that the English were very, very uh, spank happy as, as a race and really saw it as a negative part of the English psyche. And so there does seem to be a part of the English maybe not the English psyche, it seems to be part of English culture that seems really, really okay with children being beaten to the point where it was legal in some form until 1999. Now it did phase out and and it did become less and less popular before it was um, completely um, taken away, but it was still part of our psyche. And we we have people, my dad, for example, um, grew up and he was caned, my dad born in the 60s. You know, so, it, and it's still done in India, considered good parenting and discipline strategy in that part of the world, exactly. And so this is what I wanna unpick is, is why is it considered good parenting by some? Why has it been considered a good discipline strategy? And I'm also interested in psychologically where it comes from and what our alternatives could be. So it's absolutely fascinating. Um, what we get then, even in the Lancasterian um, system, didn't do him any good, <laughs> I know who that is. Um, what we get in the Lancasterian system then, even though it spares the children the rods, it's very, very fine with um, publicly humiliating children. It's absolutely fine with whacking them in a basket above the classroom. It's absolutely fine with putting them in change, chains. It's absolutely fine with humiliating them. Now, what's interesting about the Lancasterian system is it's the monitorial system and, it has a very close um, twin called the madras system. And now, the madras system was used um, in in Madras in India to, to basically to civilize the natives. And we see a lot of this in education. We see English education being used um, through behaviour management and through the teaching of English literature, a fledging subject at the time, as a way to civilize the natives. And this is what we see with um, behaviour management, and this is what we see with. Um, with schooling is that when the working classes get involved and when people from other cultures get involved, education becomes much more punitive, and much more corrective. And what we see with the Madras system is it was a real attempt to civilize those who otherwise might fall into disrepute. Lancaster specified that his classroom should be a parallelogram, the length about twice the width, the windows were supposed to be six feet from the floor. The rooms were supposed to be huge, great big things. Now, the thing with corporal punishment, then, is that it is still very much in our living memory. By the way, it's 19 states in the US. I've just found it. 19 states it's still legal in. And at least three of them, Mississippi, Alabama and Arkansas, a majority of schools still report using it. But social mores have led to its de facto abolition in in some places. And I want you to remember in 1977, the US Supreme Court came within a single vote of declaring corporal punishment unconstitutional. But that did not come to fruition and paddling school children in Graham County continued for more than 40 years, right? Now, so let's think a bit more then about corporal punishment in, um, in the UK. I read a really, really fascinating article um, from, well, a journal article from, from Andrew Birchall who talks about the idea of lo- in loco parentis and the role of the teacher as a societal corrective. And it's really fascinating because I think it, seems, it influences how teachers are seen even today. And I think there's a bit it's starting to be a move away from a certain type of teacher that seems to be a, uh, a hangover um, from um, bygone eras. Now, um, what we find, then, is if we go back in time a little bit, um, in 1938, there is the Home Office Departmental Committee on Corporal Punishment. It's otherwise known as um, the Cadogan uh, Committee after his chair. It recommended the abolition of birching, caning for juveniles. Um, but it took so long, it took until 86, for it to actually be, oh nearly uh, 50 years um for it to actually come to fruition so when it, so so 38 um the department mental committee said we should um abolish caning and yet it wasn't abolished until 86 so what was going on in the country in that point in that time period and um, what was going on um that made it so that we must continue um caning well let's have a look so what we get in British society um, is that the school alongside the home is an environment where an interaction between punisher and child existed. It is the idea that the teacher should be administering um, corrective feedback, corrective justice in in place of a parent. And Birchall contends that the discourse of teacher as parent was used by educators and their representatives to describe to ascribe positive meanings to the practice of disciplinary force. Now, this echoes Proverbs a little bit. There is the famous um, quotation from Proverbs in the Old Testament. And this goes like this, I'm just trying to find it. I have many, many notes, just have to bear So in Proverbs, um, withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with a rod, thou shalt deliver his soul from hell. So this idea you know, of sparing the rod, spoiling the child is not, not from Proverbs, but this idea, this quotation is, this is from Proverbs, um, withhold not correction from the child. So you should make sure that you are correcting your child and by beating him with a rod, you will save him from hell and therefore claim his soul for heaven. So we have this idea then, first of all, this rather religious idea that it is in the best interest of the child to hit them. And this is something that is um, seems to be a sort of societal um, societal norm. Now, what we see is is Laura King argues that actually it ties into ideas of domestic masculinity and fatherhood. We move from the rather distant um, Victoria part of familias, you know, who moves in uh, in the male sphere, almost separate from the domestic sphere of the home, which belongs to the wife and the governess. And we see the father being more and more of a feature in the home post-war. The father, though, still has these ideas that he must be a a disciplinarian and that actually um, the father's job is to bring to that domestic sphere a form of disciplinarian um, masculinity. Now, and we see this a lot in the in in um, newspapers newspapers of the time, and we see it in parenting guides. Um, now, if fathers are you know, encouraged, societally speaking, that uh, to to issue corrective hitting to their children, if we say that teachers exist in loco parentis, in the location, in the place of the parent, then that therefore extends to the, the teacher, and the teacher is therefore given huge powers in this case. To meet out justice, and it was considered that a teacher's knowledge of that of of, um, of teaching, of pedagogy, of, of of behavior management, and of their craft was such that they would be able to professionally judge whether or not such a punishment was um, was um, was oh, word eluded me completely it was okay. I wanted a better word. It eluded me now. So. The common law defense, if, if um, there was any problem with a teacher um, beating a child, was one of reasonable chastisement. Now. There was caning, but there was also I've read accounts, um, you know, of people saying there were rulers, slippers. Um, you know, some teachers used to give names to um, a ruler that they might hit a kid across the knuckles. My mum was hit across the knuckles numerous times with a ruler. Um, you know, my dad said he was caned on at least three occasions, but he's a very naughty boy. Um, now, so what we get then is this excuse. This, this in loco prentice gives this license to issue corrective, uh, corrective feedback. Um, now, in 1967, we have the Plowden Report into primary schooling, and we uh, and it recommends that um, corporal punishment is abolished for pre-secondary children. And this um, sees a new campaign, the Society of Teachers Opposed to Physical Punishment, or STOP with a double P, catchy, was created in 1968 by the teacher, Jean Adams, um, to promote the implementation of it, of the Plowden Report, not just to primaries, but to secondaries as well. So. What we see, though, is in these new secondary moderns, we see teachers talking about what they think is the best thing to do. Richard uh, Richard Farley, who was a secondary modern teacher, he wrote an advice manual to colleagues who faced the quote unquote difficult adolescent in socially depressed industrial areas. He talked about um, how best... Um, teachers should um, you know reform difficult youths and what I want you to bear in mind is poor behavior is always narratively associated with poor. Um, students it's associated with students from the working class um, poor industrial areas and they produce um, difficult adolescents. we aren't really with the hyper- hyperbole at this point of the victorian criminal class but attitudes don't change overnight and so what we find is that um, there's still this idea that the poor are going to misbehave somewhat almost inherently and so um, Farley, Farley says that the teacher should really, the best teacher should be male. And if he wants to take charge of his difficult male students, and they're always male, is that the teacher should um, have a relationship that is like a, a benevolent, corrected father. And that is absolutely grab the idea that the poor need to be controlled. We see this idea again and again and again and again, especially as English teachers, we, you know, we see this throughout when we teach poetry and all that sort of thing. And so it was said that central to both was the importance of relationships and the need to earn respect from pupils by exuding a paternalistic authority. Now mothers, oh no, of course Gaurav. Um Now mothers actually in Farley's work Um, He blamed single working mothers who spoiled their sons with gifts and pocket money and who lack the intuitive male understanding of how to motivate a boy through willpower and respect. That's a direct quote, by the way. I'll repeat that. Farley said that um, single and working mothers spoil their sons with gifts and pocket money and lack the intuitive male understanding of how to motivate a boy through willpower and respect. So we have the idea then that in order to control the errant working-class boy, a teacher, a male teacher, must take male control. It's very, very patriarchal. So, and what's interesting is that the National um, Union of Teachers, while um, arguing that there was potential harm, did at one point um, support, um, did support um Um, corporal punishment and actually um, it remained in their documentation until until the 60s so the role of the teacher was this this dual role it was almost paradoxical and the heart of the teacher's status was to be a well-trained yet caring professional who was supposed to be a, a force of nature, a force of nature, a force of fear, but also a nurturer, which is really, really difficult. And if you think about how harmful that can be, you know, I'm only hurting you because I love you. And if you think about, you know, that sentence and how creepy and awful that naturally sounds, um, This is a real issue, but it was supported by the National um, National Association of Mental Health, for example. And it talked about the relationship between the teacher and children being the most important factor in the maintenance of discipline. And that, according to the National um, Association of Mental Health, included beating children. And so it was seen as a regrettable necessity in a caring pedagogical relationship. It was cast as a loving and child centred act. And this was the language that was used, and this may partly go on to explaining why exactly um, corporal punishment lasted so long. Um, Birchall argues that it's because um, that it's because it was framed in the language of being loving and child centered. Now. The thing is, my reading about corporal punishment um, doesn't seem to support this. And I've already seen it. Toby, thank you so much for um, for sharing. Right, we've got a caller and I'm just gonna see what happens actually here. Nope, they've gone again. If anyone does wanna call in, by the way, and if anyone wants to chat about corporal punishment, their own experiences, their own opinions, please do call in and we'll have a chat for a few minutes. Um, I've got plenty of other things I wanna talk about, but please do call in. I don't have a, a scheduled guest because I'm an egotist, but please do call in, um, please do uh, please do give us a shout. So, anyway, I going to keep rattling on. If, if anyone call, wants to call in, please do. Please let me know in the chat as well. If you're thinking about calling in, more than happy to, to chat to people, more than happy. So please do pop in if you'd like to. So, but there's, I wanna share with you this um, anecdote from The Guardian. Um, and the writer of this, I forget who wrote it, but, um, this was um, a person's experience of um, corporal punishment. Uh, there were more, un- so here we go. Teachers were free to use whatever punishment they saw fit. And as students, it was commonplace to have pieces of chalk or wooden board rubbers thrown at us. There were more unusual punishments too. A boy made to stand at the front of the class with his arm- arms out wide as the teacher placed heavy books on each hand or a technical drawing ruler with the word ouch written backwards in chalk. So you were marked for the day. Hmm. It's all a bit branding, isn't it? It's all a bit scarlet letter teachers chose their slippers carefully the gym shoe was a favorite and they often gave them names and there's a particular anecdote which is absolutely terrifying Um, headmaster calls an emergency assembly after there's a really big fight involving quite a few students and he tells the students that if anyone comes forward um, they won't be punished and eventually loads of students 200 students come forward eventually thinking oh we've, we've got immunity he caned every single one of them. And this person said they sat down and they were absolutely terrified that they would be found out as having been part of this incident as well. You know, branding, we're getting into joker levels of torture, well, quite. You know, the idea that a technical drawing ruler would have the word ouch written on it. So it would brand the kid for the day, you know, with, with a word that represents how they were feeling inside. It's very, very difficult to defend this and it really is baffling how it lasted so long. But it, But it must say something about the people who were administering it and the environment that they were administering it in. So any opinions people have got as to why they think it stuck around for so long, I'd really, really love to hear whether it's you calling in or whether it's you texting in. Okay, so England's very hit-thirsty. England is an environment where School is associated often with beating there are a number of songs about it's another brick in the wall. We've got, for example, the Smiths, as much as I now loathe Morrissey, um, the Smiths headmaster ritual is all about belligerent ghouls who run Manchester schools. He does the military two step down the, the nape of my neck. I want to go home. He grabs and devours. He pushes me in the showers. You know, it's about this ridiculous um, level of of violence meted out upon students, students from the working classes. So what we're going to do now, ladies and gents, is we are now going to go to the news. We're going to have a little news break. You're going to listen to a nice lady read the news to you. She's a recording. She's not here. Right. And then we're going to talk a bit more about corporal punishment in general. And we're going to start thinking um, psychologically. We're going to start thinking about why some human beings like hurting others. And in particular, why is history full of human beings hurting other human beings who actually don't pose a threat to them to begin with? For example, powerful teachers with a big stick hitting a defenseless child. Anyway, ladies and gents, here's the news. See you in a bit.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
3: Ofsted have highlighted the worrying fact that lockdown has resulted in significantly lower levels of social care referrals. According to Robert Halfon, Chairman of the Commons Education Committee, 100,000 ghost children failed to return to school following last year's closures and were at risk of abuse. The Ofsted report states that nearly all children have fallen behind in their education due to COVID-19 and emphasises the importance of attendance for the education and welfare of pupils. Chief Inspector Amanda Spielman called for a proper register of children who aren't attending school. She said there's a whole range of reasons why people are in that category And I don't believe that we really know who those children are, where they're being educated, and who's taking responsibility for it. What's worrying is that we simply don't have a handle. We don't really know who's in that list of children who are particularly vulnerable to abuse and neglect. A report written by 40 academics called The Child of the North has drawn attention to huge inequalities between children who grow up in the north of England and the rest of the country. The report has set out 18 recommendations to tackle the problem, including more investment in welfare, health and social care systems and increasing child benefits by £10 per child. A Department for Education spokesperson said, our ambitious recovery plan continues to roll out across the country, with five billion pounds invested in high quality tutoring, world-class training for teachers and early years practitioners, additional funding for schools and extending time in colleges by 40 hours a year. We are supporting the most disadvantaged, vulnerable, or those with the least time left in education wherever they live, to make up for learning lost during the pandemic. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glynn.
1: And that's Gail Glynn there talking to us from the past. This
0: the is Two Minute
1: Tech words. with Steve Woods. Right. Your third so, briefing um, on
0: Teachers the, uh, Talk the Radio.
1: Break, we were talking about,
0: Hello, um, I'm Steve Woods, and this is Two
1: Minute Tech. Shortcuts are key combinations allow up. tasks now, to be performed is, is You may be familiar with Control-C for copy say, and, and, and I'm V for paste. This out Here's there, one that may just change your life.
0: Did you know there's a shortcut for bookmarking a webpage? But when I browsing the internet, you can quickly bookmark still... a page by holding down Control and pressing D. If on a Mac, it's oh. Command and D. Once you press this key combination, you're presented with the option to save.
1: Ah, sorry about that. I took my headphones off because there's a slight delay. Right. Okay. There we go. We're back. And that's the first. That's the first thing I got wrong. Uh, thank you very much to uh, both of you. I, I love the. uh stop playing. <laughs> right. Okay. There we go. Try lowering your own volume. Yeah, got you. Brilliant. All right. So far, though, I'm pretty proud of myself. I thought I was going to break this. So there we go. Anyway, we were talking. I'll let this out. Um, We were talking about um, (laughs) we were talking about corporal punishment. And why do we enjoy? um, Why do we enjoy hurting other people? Thank you, Caroline. It's very kind of you to say so. I'm blushing. Also, it's quite warm in here now. Now, the thing is, is that online I've been on Twitter for a little while. and oh yeah, got that Joe, thank you. Um, yeah, I've been on Twitter for a little while and what I do see is an awful lot of anger. And I absolutely love Twitter and I spend most of my time on Twitter being silly and hanging around with people who are also quite silly and and really just enjoying, uh, enjoying myself to be with you. But I do see, and you can't help it, a little bit like a car accident in the corner of your eye, all sorts of uh, disasters um that are that are happening on Twitter so and it's very nice lovely comments coming in thank you ever so much guys I really uh, my sarcastic voice does not allow me to show the proper level of emotion but I really do appreciate it thank you so much it's really lovely now um I see on Twitter an awful lot of cruelty and in fact you see it through the news and I wonder if we've channeled our meanness from our, our beatings that we used to issue to our school children. Have we, not we as teachers, but we as a society, you know, have have people still got that need to hurt others? You know, and so this is the first question I put to the chat here, is do we think that people enjoy being cruel? Do we think that people have a need to be cruel? Why are we so cruel, particularly to other people who are vulnerable? So if anyone's got any ideas in the chat, let me know and I'll, I'll pick them up as I go on. Now, inevitably, When you're thinking about cruelty, you end up with Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, it's an inherent human trait Well, is interesting. All right, Nietzsche. Now, Nietzsche said actually that cruelty was an inevitable part of being a human being. And he said actually that cruelty was quite necessary. For Nietzsche, cruelty allowed a teacher to burn a critique into another for the person's own good, because we never forget the things that are done to us in cruelty. And if you think about your worst memories, Uh, some of them will be people being mean. And by the way, I'm not meaning to trigger anybody here, but you know, your worst memories. Uh, You know, if we think about trauma, that's what trauma is, isn't it? Nietzsche said, people could also be cruel to themselves to help them become the person they wanted to be. An instinct for survival, Carolina says as well. Do you know, I'm going to get onto that later on because this does seem to be something that uh, is one of the answers to this. Um, And also, in fact, if we go to this, you know, when we were um, hunting animals, for example, Having a streak of cruelty means it's easier to kill an animal. You know, looking it in the eye. It's all right now when our chicken comes in these packets, all right? And our, you know, our cow comes in little slabs of happiness. You know that we call beef, which is delicious. Sorry, vegans, it is. it's delicious, right? But you know, you try looking a cow in the eye and stabbing it in the neck. Now, I know some of you might be thinking that's easy. I could stab a cow. Fine, good for you. You want to stab cows? brilliant all right but i would really struggle to stab a cow all right but if there was a part of humanity that was fine with cruelty if that kicked in i'd stab a cow i'd eat the cow and I'd, oh, and i'd survive so it may well be um from um you know our need to kill to survive and also you know we needed to kill to survive from other human beings as well in a dangerous world. And this may well have stuck with us. It also might be nonsense. Such is the nature of um, anthropology. Now, now, Nietzsche said then that um, felt suffering cruelty could develop courage, endurance and creativity. Now, by Nietzsche's logic, then, this seems to be a way of justifying the corporal punishment position, because if suffering helps you become, in Nietzsche's words, courageous full of endurance and creative, then great. Let's beat children because it makes them creative. It makes them have endurance. And while I think it is true that, you know, sometimes pushing yourself far and sometimes going through some pain, especially, you know, I mean, I used to run quite a lot, for example, and running through the pain was sometimes a really important thing to do. For example, if we only ever go up to our limits, we won't get better is, is the idea, but, There's a difference between effort and discomfort and cruelty. And now I think any psychologist worth their salt would say that actually the risk of trauma is just far too great. As Blaise Pascal said, humans are the glory and the scum of the universe, and this was in 1658. And we still seem to maybe there is this this two sides to us. Maybe there is this dark side of us that is absolutely fine with um, with being cruel. And actually, I ended up stumbling across something really fascinating and also quite worrying. You've heard of everyday sexism, but everyday sadism is something I've read quite a lot about recently. Now, a sadist, if we think about, you know, the etymology coming from the Marquis de Sade, a sadist is someone who takes real, uh, you're right, Joe. With guitar, and I play guitar as well. And absolutely, the the amount of times students said to me, "Sir, I don't play guitar anymore because it hurts my fingers." It's like you have got to go through the pain you need to build those calluses. And so we 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 do need some pain. And actually, human beings need to learn to um, to go through the pain. You know, our instinct goes, "No, no, no! I, I've, got, I've got to stop." Pain, pain is that alarm that tells us to stop. Actually, burning through it, there is a there is a a case for that for burning through the pain. You know, burning through the. Um, Burning through the barriers. I think it's quite important. It's how we grow. Now, everyday sadists get pleasure from hurting others or watching their suffering, but it's in a much more low key sort of way. And apparently, 6% of undergraduate students admit getting pleasure from hurting others. They enjoy gory films, they find fights exciting, and they find torture interesting. Now, the thing is, I enjoy gory films, right? I don't really find fights exciting, but I suppose everybody finds them a little bit exciting. You know, if someone's having a pop at someone else in the street, you have a look. You know, find torture interesting. Well, not to do it, but I've read a lot about it because I find and, you know, my partner, who I love very, very dearly, spends most of her spare time reading about and reading and listening to horrific murder podcasts. So I don't think she's an everyday sadist. I hope she isn't. She seems really lovely. Now, we get that we start getting into the realm as well of psychopathy and sadism and psychopathy are associated with narcissism and Machiavellianism. And when we take those traits together, they're known as the dark factor of personality or the D factor for short, which is less sexy than it sounds. Don't search for D factor. Now. Don't type. I want to do. I find fighting action scenes in fiction exciting. Yeah, I find them exciting on on TV. Do you know what I mean? You know, like. I, it, it, that's the thing. Is so. It's not just a case. It, it, there's got to be a special version of this. These everyday. These everyday sadists. People that will almost go out of their way to seek out enjoyment from the pain of others. Um. Now. What's interesting about this, and this is from an article called uh, Why Some People Are Cruel to Others, it's a really, really interesting article. And it says it is a sweet sentiment to think that if we see someone as human, then we won't hurt them. Now, because there is this idea, and I read this argument, that actually, we if we stop treating people as, as human beings, and if we see them as dehumanised, and to use an extreme example, so for example, if you look at the language to describe uh, migrants recently as cockroaches, for example, and vermin and rats, um, it's also mu- it's therefore much easier for people to laugh when they drown. Um, the same sort of language has been used throughout history with pogroms and with massacres. You know, you see all over the place, in Nazi Germany, for example, the language used to describe the Jews was dehumanizing. But Paul Bloom argues that actually it's a dangerous delusion to think that if we see someone as human then we won't hurt them. Now, there seems to be evidence to suggest that if you are um, at gunpoint, if there's somebody holding you hostage, the best thing you can do is tell them about your family and tell them about yourself. Because as soon as you humanize yourself, you make it much, much harder to be killed because you take away their objectivity. But Paul Bloom actually argues that our worst cruelties may rest on not dehumanizing people, actually, people may hurt others precisely because they recognize them as human beings who don't want to suffer pain, humiliation or degradation. And actually Paul Bloom argues in the case against empathy that the problem is with empathy, which we hold up as being like the best human emotion, you know, the idea that we should put ourselves in someone else's shoes. Paul Bloom actually argues that we are actually very selective with our empathy and that we're very, very good at going, Oh, I've got empathy, but not for these people. And so if we go all the way back, To corporal punishment in the classroom and this argument of, oh, my beating of a child is an act of empathy. This is a real distortion. and This is a real problem. And it seems to back up what Bloom is saying, because in the classroom, that teacher at that moment when Birch hits buttock, they are saying, i am being cruel to you to be kind to you i am not sparing the rod because i want to save your soul i am saving you from a dark industrial future of poverty and degradation it's a way of saying you are a human being and i'm hurting you because you're a different kind of human being to me and your pain is a purification it's a form of catharsis we get this from uh, we get this from from um, tragic tradition from from Greek theatre, for example. Now, this therefore led me to thinking about the nature of of humiliation, because so far I've talked about violence, I've talked about pain, I've talked about trauma, but also it's worth saying that it wasn't just about hurting somebody, it was also about humiliating them in public. And I ended up thinking then about the idea of public humiliation. Now I would argue that today's stocks and pillories are actually online, and that for better or for worse, we can drag people through the streets and pillory them. Now there are plenty of very nasty people who have been excoriated online, and this is not about me, you know, weighing and measuring and finding wanting or anything like that. This is not me as judge, jury, and executioner. But what I am saying is that as human beings, we do tend to get very mob happy when we see um, that there's somebody up for grabs. And we often do seem to really rave for a for a body in the street. Now, if you disagree with me, of course, please do weigh in. Um, if you've got examples, for example, of um, of people who have been excoriated on social media, and you think they've deserved it, or you think it's been a form for good, if you think it's never a good thing, please do weigh in with your opinions, people. Now, um, what we see is that um, there's there was a real shift in 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 ideas of human dignity and ideas relating to humiliation in the 1800s and basically what happens is that yes so you've been publicly shamed by John Ronson's really really interesting book Um, and John Ronson does some really interesting work actually talking about um, othering of people also see his um, the psychopath test which is really really interesting in uh, in terms of how we label people as evil. now, what we see in the eighteen hundreds is a gradual social change, you know, through social contract theory and all the rest of it, as being as a new type of honor that followed the invention of citizens. So we used to have um, rulers and subjects, and there's that dynamic, isn't there? You're either in charge or you do as you're told. You know, almost a master slave dichotomy. But what we actually start to see is the idea of citizens. We start to see people with individual rights that at least in part self govern. We see democracy. We see citizens who carry political rights and therefore possess civic honour. Now, social honour has been stratified according to uh, status and rank, but it then pertained to each and every citizen, and if it pertained to each and every citizen, then it meant that it was very difficult to humiliate in public somebody who was considered an equal, and it be- and it therefore became very difficult to exert power over one's fellow citizens because you were supposed to be equal. So this is a really crucial and semantic political shift that takes place in Europe. Increasingly, publicly administered shame sanctions were criticised by legal scholars and other um other intellectuals um you know european governments abolished the pillory public flogging and branding in the 30s and 40 the 1830s and the 1840s and they're now considered extremely barbaric but like i say them the, we could find an analog in actually the way that we've moved our uh, our punishments um online what we can see according to research into everyday sadism though is that we still to quite a common degree take pleasure in the pain of others now it seems really puzzling because aren't we supposed to be all empathetic aren't we supposed to or isn't empathy supposed to be the fuel that causes our society to run you know we see kindness all the time you know random acts of kindness but actually we have been enjoying each other's pain and suffering for thousands and thousands of years. And it suggests that sadism might play an important social function. Now, just like empathy, and let's think about this this way. If you saw someone punching a stranger in the street, you might think poorly of them. But if you found out that stranger had slept with the assailant's partner or had kicked a kid, kitten, or was you know, someone terrible like a Kardashian you might, or a geography teacher, Sorry, Mark answer. You might think differently about that situation. You might even be pleased with the person who threw the punch. It might be good for him. You know, what if the person get punched is hit? be like, yeah, suck it, Hitler. You've been punched in the face. Hitler, you're the worst Hitler. So I've just turned to Robert Webb um, now. So, so what we find actually is that um, we're, we're fine with people being punished, with people being hurt, even with people being killed, if They are sufficiently horrible. Yeah. Elgar. Why have you got to find it my worst? Elgar. Anyway, Um, so it's a long time since I've seen Peep Show, Joe. Um, But there we go. He always finds us. Now, what we actually find is that when we make moral judgments, we actually do so really subtly and selectively. So we like to think that we weigh everybody by the same measures, but actually we don't. We recognize that antisocial acts can seem really appropriate in the right circumstances. We know that the enemy of our enemy can be our friend. And actually, we make these micro judgments, these social appraisals all the time. What's really fascinating is that this stu- there's actually been studies done looking at infants and there's a really fascinating study about moose. Which always feels wrong as, as a as a plural and a singular, but there we go. Now, and it comes from a wonderful article called um, "Infants Prefer a Nasty Moose if It Punishes an Unhelpful Elephant." Now, so there's a study done that sees that infants actually prefer um, prefer things that um, punish things that do wrong. Let me explain this properly. Okay, so. There was, uh, Karen Wynn worked with 64 babies. She showed them a video of a duck hand puppet as it tried to get her a rattle inside a box. And the protagonist was aided by a helpful elephant puppet that lifted the lid, but hindered by an antisocial elephant that jumped on the lid and slammed it shut. Next, the babies saw two elephants playing with the ball and dropping it. Two moose puppets entered the fray, one the giver and one the taker, who would steal it away. And the babies were then given a choice between the two Moose. So basically, there was a helpful moose puppet and an unhelpful moose puppet, and the what we actually found was that the babies gravitated towards the nasty moose if they saw the nasty moose punishing the unhelpful element from elephant from earlier. So this is a bit complicated, but basically, if there was an elephant earlier on that was unhelpful, even if the moose that punished it was nasty. Right, and they saw it being demonstratively nasty, they were able to overlook that nastiness in the name of social justice. And this is babies, right, as toddlers. All right. In those in their early months, babies learn to judge an action not simply on whether it helps or harms a person, but also whether that person deserves it. This is what this is what suggested that actually they prefer characters who help out good puppets and who punish bad ones. They learn that context matters, they are able to overlook bad things. If they can see good things if they can see other bad things being punished which is really interesting now you could just say the babies were matching bad for bad they saw the, the elephant behaving negatively so they picked the moose that acted negatively to the elephant but there was a second experiment done to disprove it this time it was the duck that played with the ball and relied on the help of the two moose even if the uh, duck had been wronged by an elephant the babies still preferred the given moose so um, and toddlers and babies um, both seem to display um, the same preference. Children don't merely put positive and negative values on agents on their basis of their experience and prefer the goody. Um, instead, they can tell the difference between appropriate reward and punishment according to the context. To me, this says that toddlers already have more or less adult moral reasoning. This is the person who did the experiment. Isn't this amazing? I don't know in what way adults would react in the same situation in a more sophisticated way. So are we, therefore, just like babies? Are we really that infantile in our brains? Does that part of our brain grow? Are we truly, can we really accept this idea that we are happy to overlook evil if we see evil that we want to see being punished, being punished? Is that what we want? Do we want to see being punished? Do we actually secretly enjoy it? Are we the worst? You know, are we actually everyday sadists? Or is Mr. Wright talking an absolute load of hooey? But one thing is clear, is that the ideas surrounding um, corporal punishment, though corporal punishment has been been abolished, haven't died out. In the US, um, some judges um, award some very creative um, punishments to um, to, um, people who have um, broken the law. Um, For example, there was a guy who um, did a hit and run and he was made to carry a sign around saying, um, I took a life around a courthouse for a month. Like this sign saying I took, I did a hit and run and I took a life. And he was made to carry it around this courthouse for a month. This is stocks and pillory sort of thing. And this happened a few years ago, you know, and there have been a number of occasions uh, and there was one, and he was also made to um, clean up the um, accident site as well, like for a month, he had to go and clean and visibly be seen to clean the accident site. you see in the US as well with people doing community service, Um, you know, and even in in my school, for example, we, um, you know, we have students um, be punished by doing uh, community service, going out with litter picks and stuff. And I'm not suggesting that's wrong for example, but I am saying that we are okay with the idea of punishing people publicly. And we are and we are okay with the idea of um, of people being uncomfortable. We are comfortable with the idea of social justice, perhaps. Now, what this ends up showing us about ourselves and how this might influence us as teachers and how this might influence in our behavior as human beings remains to be seen. Who knows? It's not for me to say I'm not a moral arbiter. I barely know what's going on half the time. Here's what's going to happen now. It's 11 minutes past nine. I can see that people are still there and it's absolutely lovely that you're still there, bless your hearts. I am now going to play the advert again in case you missed it before, here is the advert now.
0: Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds.
1: And I'm back smoothly. Right, that's my final transition. And I think, yeah, I can be heard. I'm there, we're all connected. Okay, so the last thing I'll talk about then, because I did promise and like, you know, I wanna move away from sadism and correctional beatings and putting a kid in a flesh basket. And what I'd like to do actually is just finish off with what was supposed to be my original thing, which is about things, um, of educate, things from education, like thinking hats and mini plenaries and and smart boards, things from education past that um, we have all come to mock on Twitter. And what I would really like, and this is, I'm gonna rely on the chat here and I'm gonna like wait, and this is gonna be like a live lesson. I want you to tell me in the chat um, what your opinions are do you think there are any things that you know have fallen out of educational favor that we should give a second chance so for example De bonos thinking hats sure we're not going to wear hats but do we think that they might help with critical thinking skills does anyone want to defend the much maligned smart board for example does anybody want to um does anybody want to defend PowerPoint? I know PowerPoint is still very much de rigueur in schools, but does anybody want to, it's It's starting to gradually fall out of favour. Does anyone want to defend PowerPoint, for example? So what have you got for me in the chat? And also, I do still have time. If someone wants to call in and talk about things that they think should be given a second chance in education, not corporal punishment. I mean, if you want to argue it, fine, but everyone will hate you. Can't think of anything I bring back. Have you mentioned laptop trolleys? They were crap. Emma, why were laptop trolleys crap? Why were they so terrible? We've still got one in my school. Why were they so bad? I do like lollipop sticks with names on still. Yeah, Nathan, why did, why did people, yeah, they didn't, they were crap, weren't they? I mean, that goes for all school technology, really, doesn't it? Uh, What, right, lollipop sticks, Nathan, I remember being told that this was like the gold standard of teaching in my training year when I trained in 2012 um, to 13. What has happened to Lolly Sticks? Why would you defend Lolly Sticks, Nathan? And you can call in if you like, by the way, if you wanted to Or you can just type it and tie it up to you. He's typing, isn't he? Which gives me a delay anything else they're fun they're oh okay they're fun so we kind of like the the randomness i suppose now it's very much the kind of the Doug Lem off isn't it uh, teach like a champion 8.9 or whatever it is which is uh, very much about targeted questioning isn't it and cold calling rather than doing it at random the kids love random name pickers and lollipop sticks yeah one of my colleagues does it with a big ticker on the board that goes round and round and round and round cold calling it's called cold calling now isn't it yeah i think isn't cold calling toby it's supposed to be a bit more selective i know lots of people who still use lolly sticks fair enough um my main beef with lolly sticks was i'd lose them to be honest and amongst all the other detritus that uh, is in my drawers i mean honestly i don't i don't look in my, when i looked in my drawers it was awful. um cold call is indeed meant to be selective rare and that's the thing i think is this may be why lolly sticks have fallen out of favor is it perhaps because they they introduce too much entropy um I know Toby's a big fan of entropy, and I'm sure. And you should definitely tune into Toby and Ed's show um, at ten o'clock, where he's going to be tremendously silly with Ed Finch. I had the pleasure of being on Toby's show as a last-minute waffler, um, talking about Jesus and Terry Pratchett and whatnot. Uh, it always anything with silly rainbow diagrams, like thinking hats and Bloom taxonomy. Hang on, so uh, Caroline, are you defending um, silly rainbow diagrams, or are you um, excoriating it? Are you are you having a tube map display? Right, this seems to is this a London thing? The tube map display. So, so, you're, so you're not defending. So, currently, so um, Bloom's taxonomy that was such a big deal. Like, if you weren't in the analysing synthesis bit at the top, your lesser was stupid, wasn't it? A knowledge all the way down the bottom. Knowledge rich education for the win, everybody. I've known a couple of kids who would get super upset if they were called upon without putting their hand up. Uh, oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. And there's still those three kids in every class that, like, do the year seven hand up thing where it's like, uh, Miss, sir. uh," And it's like that. It's it's the constipation hand up, isn't it? And you just want to put your hand down, please. Constantly. The tube map is worse. Right. Sorry. What's going on with the tube map? I've I've never seen one of these. I mean, maybe I've hardly maybe Northamptonshire has like a uh, no tube map policy or maybe I've just been lucky. But what is the tube map? Can you share images into the chat? Uh, what is the tube map I've, I've heard about the tube map. I've heard it be mentioned. I just presumed it was it was terrible because everyone seemed to hate it but is it a way of kind of structuring learning? We didn't have the budget in the novel not having the tube we don't have the budget for anything, do we? Oh, you can't share images sadly uh, maybe in the future. okay well, for, someone please do do tell me uh, maybe on Twitter give me an example of the tube map so we can all um, revel in how terrible it is slash was. Um, okay anything else a better writing on the circle line do you know it's been so london i don't know any any, any teachers from london in here at the moment because london terrifies me as, as a place like i i've enjoyed going to london before but it re- i don't know how anyone would live there i don't know how anyone would live in london it just strikes me as, as so fast paced i think my eyes would bleed. You know, whenever I go to London, I always just get sweaty. Like in London, Londoners, are you always just sweaty? Because seriously, within five minutes of being in London, I am sweaty. Like, and I'm, admittedly, I'm quite a warm person in both temperament and uh, temperature. But yeah, tube map teaching. Well, what is what is going on with tube map teaching? Who knows? Maybe this mystery will be solved. Um, but yeah, um, what was I saying? But yeah, London. So Joe wants to come in. Oh, absolutely, Sir Joe. Here he comes. Hello hello joe oh fantastic now i've got slight latency so do bear with me joe what do you want to say
2: oh i just um because i i am a londoner um Uh so i just wanted to um to call in about that because i I am a londoner myself and uh yeah i mean to an extent i i kind of get it's not (laughs) sweaty londoners yeah it's it's not for everyone because of course it it, and i i don't i don't like it if if it's like hugely busy like i'm not central london i'm more greater london area but that being said um my school um did i tell you about this in our tech induction i don't think i did did i about what my school is yeah so my school is a very progressive nature-based outdoor primary school um we do a lot of project-based learning the kids get more play time and everything takes place outdoors um and so yeah every lot of what we do is very is very progressive so it's kind of there's two worlds there like we're in london where it's a busy city we're not in the country however the school we're at is kind of, we're on three acres of national trust land. Mm. So you kind of get both worlds there. Oh, that's really interesting. And
1: I suppose when I think of London, and I suppose maybe if non-Londoners think of London, it is in that stereotypical central London sort of way, if you know what I mean, like, because you see the main bits, don't you?
2: Yeah. And we've got, I mean, we have we have had a few families who have moved out of London and moved to the country, which is, you know, I guess kind of understandable for the nature of our, our kids and our families. One of the reasons why they would choose a school like 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 mine.
3: Mm.
1: So I'm really fascinated, actually, by your school because this seems very much against the educational flow. So yours is all oh, yeah. like outside and sort of kissing trees and that sort of thing, and making <laughs> no. sort of hats out of feelings.
2: Not no, not no, not I'm kissing. I'm joking. I am. Joking. Um, but yes we are definitely anti uh, well we we don't go uh, against we go against the system when we don't wow. really we 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 take the bits we do like and we scrap the bits we don't like um wow, the po- okay. the point the point of our school is you know that we think the mainstream system is too rigid and uh too prescriptive and Not enough attention is given to creative subjects. And also, we want our kids to be those that look after the environment. And so, yeah, we do have quite a busy timetable, but a lot of our learning is done via play-based learning, so we'll set up incentives and they can go and play, but they... No, we don't wear uniform in our school, and all, mm. and um and also all teachers are known by their first names. Um, yeah, load loads of. Uh, it's called Liberty Woodland School. Um, and I know a few teacher sort radio people follow me on Twitter. It's in my bio mm. if you're interested.
1: I am. I am very interested. It's not like anything I've ever heard about before.
2: Oh yeah. I, I, I'm their music teacher and mm. also computing lead. So um, I go I go around to all the classes and I do, I do some music with them. That's that's my job. And what year groups um, do you teach in that school? Um, I teach across the school. So um, uh, currently we've got four classes. We've got a reception class. We've got a year one class, got a year two and three class. And then we've got a year four, five and six class. Do you think your approach would work in a secondary setting? That we are planning on expanding into secondary. So our our boss um, or our head teacher, Liana Barrett, she um, set it up mainly for her own children. And um, she wants, as her eldest is in year six, she wants them to, um, she wants them to, grow up in that school basically because um you know she originally did that with nursery she set up a nursery franchise little forest folk and then um look all the primary school offerings were sucked basically in her Mm. opinion so she set up her own school which is you know how how she believes school should be and um you know it's something that i can i can definitely get behind as well it does sound absolutely
1: fascinating. It sounds like the sort of place I would at least love to visit. It sounds very joyful.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, def- it definitely is. Um, and you, you should, you should, you should, you should contact us if you're interested in visiting. I will. I'll do come that. down to Sweaty London absolutely uh, yeah and uh, no joe that's really
1: lovely thank you so much for calling in um it's really lovely to get uh more perspectives and you have you have the making of a future guest on this show i think for certain right
2: thank uh, you i'm so already good. a host though so uh oh that's true that's true yeah oh, God, spread my
1: net, right oh, uh, but so i true. mean
2: check check with tom that yeah yeah good point <laughs> fair enough thank you so much joe right no so problem. i'm just gonna
1: wrap up um, a little bit then, just finally. And I wanna just end on talking about the smart board. And I'm gonna use the smart board. Now I said this on the Twitter space as well, a little while ago, but I'm just gonna kind of uh, mount a final defense of the much maligned smart board. Now for the initiated, the smart board is a monstrosity. The smart board is a low resolution, basically computer screen. Uh, it's an interactive whiteboard as otherwise known as. And so what you can do is you can project onto it, but you can you can draw on it and stuff like that but it's very laggy the software is very poor they often don't work um, normal ball pens don't work on them which doesn't stop teachers using them and so what you end up with is an, an ollie Haley described it as a uh, yes they are better Joe, absolutely are better but i uh, right so elaine elaine's got very feisty all of a sudden hasn't she now i'm gonna you i think you heard my defense of this before elaine so i'm not surprised at your vitriol um and it can get in the bin if you find a bin big enough now, the smart board gets covered in what Ollie Haley called a palimpsest of like all this vestigial handwriting, this kind of lines and lines and lines of handwriting that hasn't quite rubbed off. And so it doesn't project properly, it doesn't work properly, they're too small, the resolution is rubbish. And they're always in crap classrooms, they're always in the classroom where dreams go to die, they're always in this kind of like Cold War bunker, you know, where the bit in the wire was shot where they uh you know they, they sent all the crap police officers to do the detail you know it's shot in this ridiculous lord it's not like the set of saw basically it's like it's like one of those sort of films like an eli roth film you know it's uh it's fully hostile so so look you end up in this terrible classroom you know with bullet holes in the walls you know horrible profane graffito you know on the desk in front of you and you um and you switch on this terrible smart board you were supposed to be able to write on the memory. You're absolutely right. Now, the thing with the smart board is that it is it gets in the way of teaching. It is one of many, many obstacles that we face. The futility of recalibration. That sounds like a really, really good prog rock record. Now, you weren't, Toby. You're were a beautiful, beautiful teacher. Now, the thing with this, the whiteboard and the, 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 the interactive whiteboard, the reason I defend it is because what it does, when you teach with technology that rubbish, Right, what it does is it makes you a better teacher. Now, it goes back earlier, and this is why I bring it up, it goes back earlier to the idea that we need some resistance in order to get better. And actually, it's in adversity adversity could often be the crucible that makes us. Now, too much of it, too much nature, and it all gets really, really silly, and we end up beating children. But just a little bit of pressure, just a little bit of, of hardship, a little bit of resistance, a little bit of becoming accustomed to pain, I think can make us better. And I think the interactive whiteboard does that. Period six, bottom set year nine, interactive whiteboard. If you can teach in that lesson, if you can make that, if you can teach in spite of your interactive whiteboard, you will become an incredible teacher. If you can get your students engaged then, then you can do anything. And I think this is what the interactive whiteboard does is it is awful. And yes, it should get in the bin. But so should so many things about teaching and what we can do as teachers, if I may offer a, 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 maybe a misbegotten uh, message of hope to round out the show, is that I think that sometimes the difficulties could be in the making of us. The obstacle is the way, as Marcus Aurelius would say, you know, if we're going to be stoic about it, you know, we should remember that um, we can turn our obstacles into our greatest triumphs. The obstacle is the way we can jump right over it. And we can learn from it guys thank you so much it is balmy absolutely but you know i presume you've been here for the whole show right Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, please do share the show on uh, Twitter. I'm uh, back of Gladiator and Pooh Sponges. I am on Twitter at Curtain Sleep, because Macbeth. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to host my first show. I hope I haven't bored people's death. Thank you, Elaine. That's very kind of you. Bless you. Um, it will be available within the next sort of 15 minutes as a, uh, as a podcast. Please do share it on uh, social media. I've really enjoyed being here. I need to have a drink and lie down now. Thank you all so much. I'm now going to play the closing jingle.